This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast on the second day of February. How are we there already? However, Friday morning as well, though, end of the week. And quite a lot to get through this morning. That includes the numbers out from Barouge, uh, which has seen a drop in net profit for the year. We've been speaking to the CFO, Jan Martin Neufer, about why. We've also been having a look at what's happening in the office space here in Dubai. Uh, We're seeing in the US and Japan and Switzerland concern amongst the banking sector about the office sector and the loans out on commercial property. Here, we can't get enough offices. Uh, Ben Barg is the Managing Director of CRC Properties. Their new report suggests that we're going to see 44,000 square metres of office space come on the market this year. But that is a drop in the ocean. A little ink in the printer? A small amount of milk in your morning coffee? Bad metaphors. Uh, It's not enough, is the short answer. And Ben is going to give us his theories as to why we need more and what could be done. Damien Reid, meanwhile, motoring journalist, PR consultant, motorsports commentator and F1 television commentator has been in talking about Lewis Hamilton's defection from Mercedes to Ferrari. All of that, we've been looking at why the Bank of England kept interest rates on hold and what we can learn from the Indian budget. We've been looking at a number of local and regional stories. We've been looking at a number of international stories with knock-on effects here on the UAE economy, none more so than interest rate decisions the world over. Fed holding yesterday, uh, that, of course, prompted UAE to do the same overnight. It was the chance for Mr Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, to address the UK rates. Did this? We've had some good news over the past few months. Inflation has fallen a long way from 10% a year ago to 4% now. Things are moving in the right direction. So yes, we have had good news, but we have to be more confident that inflation will fall all the way back to the 2% target and stay there. And we're not yet at a point where we can lower interest rates. Andy Bailey, confident. What about Ed Bell? What did we learn from the commentary after the BOA kept its rates on hold as well? So we had a hold on policy rates from the Bank of England for the first meeting of the year. That's largely what we had been expecting as well as I think broadly in markets, and it's similar to what we saw from the Fed earlier this week. The focus is now gonna turn to what the Bank of England is gonna do from here, and while it clearly doesn't think that they need to do any additional hiking or tightening of policy, Governor Bailey from the bank said that they needed to see more evidence of inflation falling all the way to 2% and staying there before they felt confident that they could start to cut rates. Inflation in the UK has declined, but it is still at about 4%, so well above target levels. Ed Bell there, at Senior Economist, Emirates MBD. Uh, that's the England, or sorry, the UK economy done. Let's turn attention to India, Mr. Mr. Dean. Yeah, big day yesterday, the final budget before the elections, which start in April and go on till May. This is the headline in the Financial Times. Modi vows to spend big. India's government has pledged record outlays on railways, airports and other infrastructure. This is Nirmala Sitharaman. She's the finance minister. Big speech from her yesterday in Parliament. This is her talking about, and she's a politician, so of course she's bigging up her own government, their contribution to the poorest people in India. We believe in empowering the poor. The earlier approach of tackling poverty through entitlements had resulted in very modest outcomes. When the poor became empowered partners in the development process, government's power to assist them 
also increases manifold. We've been getting reaction to this from both sides of the house. Yesterday, we spoke to the economist Manarajan Sharma, chief economist at Ifamerics Ratings in India. His thesis was very much pro-Modi, lauding the economic achievements of that government. Not everyone agrees, though. Here's Professor Jyoti Ghosh of Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. She is a critic of the Modi administration. These were her key takeaways from the budget. Well, there were really no important policy announcements. The direction is still the way it was over the last 10 years, which is one that's largely oriented towards big capital and the rich and has more or less forgotten about farmers, workers, the young people who brought Modi into power. We'll have more of that to come as we build up to the elections in India. We're going to focus on the economics because we're the business breakfast. Many people wrote in saying Professor Ghosh was clearly very anti-Modi in her commentary. I'm afraid you can't separate the politics from the economics. We'll do our best to be balanced. But finding neutral commentators on this for the Indian election or the economics of the US election going to be different, difficult. Everyone's got a view. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. It is earnings season. We've been looking at the big tech companies this morning, but a little bit closer to home. We've got Baruge, which is the Abu Dhabi-listed petrochemicals company. They make polymer solutions, uh, things like polyethylene, polypropylene for a number of industries, packaging, healthcare, etc. They have reported their full year profits, uh, net profit falling from from 1.4 billion in 2022 to 1 billion in 2023. By my maths, that's around 29%. Very pleased to be joined this morning by the CFO, Jan Martin Neufer. Jan, it's lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning and thanks for having me. Right, let's kick off with that fall in net profit. Your report talks of challenging global market conditions. What's going on? Indeed. I think we're very pleased about a one billion profit in 2023. The comparison to 2022 is is quite obvious. We had in the last year a very high price environment, which came down. And this is also explaining mainly the difference between the, the two years. In such, a, in such a challenging market in the polyolefin industry, it is an excellent uh, outcome that we have achieved the one billion mark. So we're very happy about that one. Also looking at the uh, income trajectory and the uh, growth in net profit quarter over quarter with 288 uh, million in the fourth quarter, we believe this is a very good result. Why did the pricing come down? The pricing did come down essentially because of uh, some of the uh, oversupply that we have been seeing, some of the global challenges. So that's a, a general market phenomenon that you can uh, realize in the uh, in the polyolefins petrochemicals industry. So that's uh, that's the, the current setup that we have been seeing with quite a significant uh, price release. Prices are now um, stabilizing. And on an upwards trend, uh, what we saw towards the end of the year, we still see the prices develop in a narrow band uh, sideways, sideways. But uh, the company with uh, the uh, actions that have been taken throughout the year 2023 with the value enhancement program, our improvement program, are very substantive. And uh, that means we are very well positioned also in comparison to the peers for 2024. Okay. Well, you talk about demand also reducing from from peak levels in in 2022. What's driving demand down? First of all, uh, just to look a little bit at 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 Baruch, we're um, usually selling everything that we're producing, right? So we had also in a challenging year 2023, no problem in in selling our our, our products globally. We're serving the uh, highest growth markets 
if we look at the areas which we're serving globally, it's China, it's the Asian region, it's India. Um, from that perspective, we're serving those areas which inherently have the have the largest growth and also the largest polyolefin demands in the in the regions. So from that perspective, I think we're seeing right now from the overall uh, situation in the global economy, some signs for recovery. And uh, the uh, prognosis has been tilted upwards in terms of the uh, particularly the outlook for those uh, for those areas. So uh, that's a little bit the uh, the situation which we're looking at, which also will look into the into the growth for 2024. So what are you forecasting for growth in 2024? So essentially, um, look, as I said, again, we're producing five million tons of polyethylene products, polypropylene, polyethylene in uh, in uh, in a year. And we're, we're clear that uh, also in the 2024 year, we will sell that. For the growth per se, I think we're not doing specific now growth forecasts in here. We're very confident that again, also in 24, we can uh, we can leverage on uh, on our excellent market position and sell the goods in the areas where we see the best net back. So uh, we're not doing any specific growth forecasts internationally for the uh, growth rates in the various co- countries, but we're sticking to the point and uh, saying, look, uh, our product always finds a home in the infrastructure and value-added solutions that we're serving. Well, you say you see the price on an upwards trajectory. I'm looking here at price, I think, down 16% for the full year. Will it completely recover this year, do you think? Well, as I said, the current expectations is there is a recovery. We see that already towards the end of uh, 2023. But uh, when we look at at the global markets and our trajectory, we see it sideways. The uh, price development right now, there are, as I said, signs of recovery, which is uh, the usual trajectory in the industry after the trough that we have been seeing. So we're on a good on a good track. Whether they recover in full, I think that's still to be seen. We're currently seeing that it's more going on the sideways direction, sideways up. What do your fortunes this year depend on? What needs to happen? So, um, look, I think... The uh, the main part for us is we're well positioned in, in the industries we're serving. Our goods are predominantly in the infrastructure sector, right? A large portion of our our uh, return comes from those uh, from those products. This is cabling. This is this is electronic electric wiring um, um, uh, coverage that we're looking at. It's uh, it's a large it's a large amount of uh, of goods that you need in the infrastructure sector and that have inherently a very good trajectory. So um, we're looking into um, having, again, a good year in terms of the uh, in terms of the outlook. Our fortune depends not that much on the overall price level. It's uh, clearly the positioning in the countries we're serving, in the industries we're serving. We're also looking at the current global challenges like the Red Sea, which is on the one hand a challenge, but on the other hand, also a good opportunity for the company. Uh, looking at uh, at the status right now, I think uh, strong results uh, show that we're well positioned for, for the for the growth. We have an exciting growth project with Rouge Four coming forwards, so that is uh, that is in addition a uh, um, let's say healthy development for us to uh, to go into 2024. Uh, Jan, you mentioned the Red Sea there. You've preempted my final question. I've yep. got a minute left with you. How is it <laughs> impacting you and? Where is it an opportunity for you? The Red Sea situation is, uh, as we know, this disruption in the in the logistics mainly. We do not see right now 
a um, an inherent um, a problem in the in the transport. It's more a cost issue right now. Let's also make it clear: it's twenty percent of the of the total shipping we're doing that goes through the Red, Red Sea or is impacted by the Red Sea. Uh, we're having doing an excellent job in terms of you know, managing the logistics cost in, uh, in, in 2023. 600 million on the improvement program and 300 million alone from the sales and distribution costs, right? And that relates to the logistics cost. So the team is on that. The chances that we're seeing is that, you know, we're still able to sell. We're still able to ship through the uh, through the Red Sea. Not everybody is doing that right now, so there are opportunities. Hang on, so you are still shipping through the the Red Sea. How are you? Twenty seconds. How are you managing to do that? So, in, in essence, as I said, right now the main part is that it is a cost. It is a cost uh, uh, issue. So we're not shipping directly uh, the same channels. Some of the channels are still open. The rest needs to be rerouted, and this is giving then uh, a, a cost uh, increase that we're seeing. But as I said, well managed in terms of the overall cost-cutting that we're doing. So the team has been uh, taking all levers to uh, to make sure that uh, the uh, the situation is very well under control. Okay. And I said, it's an opportunity because okay. we can ship. We have, uh, we have those um, possibilities to also reroute. The CFO, Jan-Martin Neufer from Baruj. Unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Headlines this morning, FT, CNN, uh, about bank losses in the US, reviving fears over the US commercial property market. Low occupancy rates, high interest rates um, mean that there is concern about bank loans for offers buildings. Here in the UAE, it seems to be the opposite story. We can't get enough of the stuff. We've got a new report coming out from CRC, that's part of the Better Homes Group, uh, saying that we're set to get 44,000 square metres of office space this year. There's a couple of zeros in there. But is it anywhere near like enough? We are very pleased uh, to be joined by the Managing Director of CRC this morning, Ben Barg. Ben, good morning. Good morning, Brandy. So, 44,000 square metres, drop in the ocean? Absolutely. And if you look at Dubai, you've got all these free zones and you have mainland. So what you see is mostly in free zones coming up. So mainland is really less than that. So it's a drop in the ocean and we are actually seeing very, very high occupancy in mainland. Like we're talking buildings at 98%, 99%. Okay, so this 44,000 square metres, that's just free zone? Mostly free zones. And, you know, if you look, put it in perspective, we're talking about five buildings. So, you know, it sounds, sounds like it's got many zeros. We, we're talk, talking about five buildings only, maximum. Why so little? I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I came here last time. I've, I've been a big advocate of promoting developers to come to the market and develop, especially A-quality a buildings. But they prefer residential with quick, quick turnover, quick money. They're just putting money first. And there's, uh, there hasn't been any uh, you know, initiative from government to give incentives to developers as well. So, but what we see is that occupancies are very high, dr- driving the prices high as the demand is not slowing down. Okay, let's dig into that a little bit because you're right. There are developers coming in from all over the world, a lot of international names who are getting into the residential space. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about why that's so much more attractive than the office space. You know, basically, with you know, with that kind of uh, you know philosophy, when they come in, they know they can sell the products to a wider audience. It's a quick turnover, 
sometimes as soon as they get to 30%, I would say, um, you know, build up enough plant, they can actually stop uh, selling them. And with commercial market, it's not the same. They have to wait till the end usually, and they normally, the strategy is to rent it and, and then sell it. So just developers are not interested. They're just interested in residential quick, you know, it's low hanging fruit for them. So that's, that's how I see it. So what does that mean for the companies that need office space? You know, we are, we are suffering. Um, you know, at one stage, we had more than 3,000 listings in Dubai. Now that's been third. We have 1,000 like, active listings at any given time. That means prices are going up. I, I see less movement, like tenants are not moving because it doesn't make sense for them to move as the price has gone up. And the occupancies are so high that, you know, um, you know, also landlords, it's landlords market. So they, 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 the terms that they have, they don't give as, as, as favorable terms, you know, they're demanding for one or two checks, they're demanding for, um, you know, less rent free period if it's a shell and core office. So it's a landlord's market at the moment. What about to sell, to, to buy rather? Is there the, the stuff for sale? We've, we've seen a huge increase. So late, lately we um, like obviously sent our report out for last year. There are 76% uh, more transactions in sales. There's a lot of companies that look at the market and say, we're paying a lot of rent, so we may as well capitalize on that rent so to become end users. Also, as the rent prices are going up, it's getting more attractive for investors because they're getting bidding yield. So we are seeing more transactions in commercial real estate, and that's becoming a, a good asset for investors and end users to invest in. If commercial landlords are getting those yields, though, do they want to sell? What does the stock look like? No. So we have, I would say, in Dubai, two types of landlords. The freehold landlords, when individuals, and then we have full buildings and owned by one company or one entity. Those buildings, they're not for sale usually, but the individuals, there are some that they look at and say, okay, it's a good time to exit. If they bought it two or three years ago, they, they could have doubled their money, so why not? And a lot of companies, of course, won't have a, much of a choice as to how much they rent because of a tie between visas and square footage. Talk me through that. That's, that's also another challenge. So as you grow the number of employees in your company, there is a matrix that you have to follow by the Economic Department, depending on your activity. For example, it's 80 square feet per visa per person. So let's say if you've got another 50 people that you're forecasting to employ, you've got to have the like another three, 4,000 square feet to add to your office space. Okay, so we reached 1,120 um, for a square foot last year for, for sales, for price, and we're just short of the 2014 high. I think that, that report, if you have a look at it, um, it doesn't consider the A-quality building. The A-quality buildings and prime locations, they're even higher. That's the average price. I mean, we've seen similar stats in residential. You've got the prime locations that have gone much higher. Um, look, I don't see any supply coming to the market for the next three years. Just, just to put it in perspective, if you want to really build a G plus 50, it would take you three years planning, approvals and construction. So the next three years, there's shortage of supply. And I can only see it if the demand doesn't slow down, which it hasn't, the prices would go up and up. 30 seconds left with you. How high could they get? Give me a number. Look, it's, it's kind of scary in some areas. It's doubled since, 2000, since COVID. Um, but also, I think the supply and demand equilibrium will come to the play at one stage. Having said that, as you said, unless the law changes, some companies have no choice. So when you have no choice, you have to pay the price.
CSE Managing Director Ben Barg talking about office space um, here in the UAE. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk all things automotive, business and sports with the return uh, of the host of Motor Mania, our Saturday motoring show, which is back tomorrow. The motoring journalist, PR consultant, motorsports commentator and F1 TV commentator, uh, Damien Demo-Reed, is live with us here in studio, hot-footing it uh, from Oz by way of airports all the way to Dubai Eye Studios as well. Demo, good to see you as always. Good morning. Matchsticks under the eyes, but I'm in here. <laughs> Good on you, fella. You're, t- you're taking one for the team. I'm back in here tomorrow, I understand. Is that right? Motormania back on tomorrow with some, uh, yeah, some really good content. So uh, looking forward to getting stuck back into it. Uh, got you in for a multitude of reasons. Big one is, of course, uh, the dancing horse of Ferrari. We'll get onto that one shortly. But loads of big stories coming out of the more automotive industry in recent times. Uh, obviously, we had the uh, CEO or the managing director of Toyota Lexus in the studio with us yesterday. They were talking about their market share. Yet again, uh, Toyota, uh, the biggest automaker in the world, pipping uh, their near rivals, Volkswagen. Yet again, any big surprise there? Not really. I mean, they're, they're, they're on a roll at the moment, and uh, I'm not totally surprised that they'll be doing that. Volkswagen, they're, they're so diversified with their product lineup with, with different brands, whereas Toyota is, is one big conglomerate, and uh, they're fighting back. Looking at the earnings coming out as well, as you were just uh, hearing there, shares of Volvo soaring 26% after scaling back its support for loss-making EV brand Polestar. The Volvo brand continues to rise, yeah, and interesting too. Now we're starting to see uh, a bit of a bit of stumbling with the EV brands, particularly on resale values. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, that's having a bit of an impact. It's so that's impacting Polestar, but Volvo certainly they've split from from the Polestar brand, but and they're they're on their way up. So uh, yeah, well, I think that's probably part of that reason. And a couple of big stories coming out of Ferrari yesterday. The first was uh, the stock story as well. Great day for Ferrari. They saw their stocks gain 9% on the back of record revenue and profit. So the Ferrari brand, just looking at it from that point of view, continues to boom. Amazing stuff. I was watching this yesterday, and uh, they were at 5% when the announcement, when the rumours came out about Lewis Hamilton within one hour, uh, they'd moved to 7%. By the time the markets close, they're at 8.8%. So, you know, given the fact that uh, they're, they're on a cap of $66 billion, they made uh, they made about seven billion dollars yesterday uh, on the on the close of uh, of the stock exchange. Not a bad day's work. That's I think they got their, sure. their transfer fee back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned Lewis Hamilton there. Look, uh, he is uh, it is a name that is synonymous with success in the world of Formula One for doing things like this. Inside, outside, outside, inside. Which way is Lewis Hamilton going to go? To the left, to the right. It's going to be to the right. It's going to be round the outsides. Hamilton pulls ahead. Head of a stack before they get to the corner. The crowd go absolutely wild. He has gone from last all the way to first. What a drive! Yes, come on, guys. What a drive. Yeah, there is no doubting the talent of Lewis Hamilton. There is no doubting his place in the history books already of Formula One. But uh, it will, of course, be hand in hand with, to the large part, Mercedes until. Yesterday, that was. Now, this big news coming out yesterday, Lewis Hamilton is poised to make a shot move to Ferrari. 
I didn't see this one coming, did you? Well, it's kind of been, he has mentioned it a few times. He's got a few Ferrari road cars in his collection and he's, you know, there, there's been that in the background. I was thinking about it, I think about the big moves in, in the history at the centre moving from McLaren to Williams. Lewis Hamilton moving from McLaren to Mercedes. Michael Schumacher coming back from retirement to Mercedes. But I think this is the biggest move in F1 history simply because he has been a Mercedes contracted driver since he was 13 years old with go-karts. Won his first world championship with with McLaren that was powered by Mercedes and then won every other subsequent championship with Mercedes. So he's never driven with any other engine behind him. And this is phenomenal. I can't think of it. And the, and the fact also is that if he does get that world championship with Ferrari, he'll be the only driver in history to win three world championships with three different manufacturers, with uh, McLaren, Mercedes, and then Ferrari. So massive, massive news. 39 years old, still got a couple of years uh, in, in, in the driving seat. Yeah, well, you know, Mercedes issued a very lengthy statement last night um, when it all boiled down to it. Ferrari issued a very, very brief statement. It was about two lines long saying that he will be joining the Scuderia um, from 2025. However, the key point it said is on a multi-year contract. So it's not just a one-hit wonder. When he does settle in in 2025, it will be for at least two years with that team. And I guess he's looking at Fernando Alonso and thinking, well, the, the, the wise old wizard of Formula One is still going around putting in competitive times, and he can do that too. Um, 2025. It's a year away, Damo. He's got to sit in a Mercedes seat for a whole year. We start early March with the new F1 um, calendar. Um, how does that work? Awkward. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, A for him and B for Carlos Sainz as well. Well, it's awkward in the fact that also, too, we've got the, the official launches of these cars happening. Ferrari is happening on the 13th of February and uh, Mercedes is happening on the 14th of February and they've both got a front up in their respective uniforms to talk about how great their car is going to be for the next season and how they're going to do it. I guess we've seen it before. You've just got to play it out and, uh, and, and do your best for that team. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be... We're going to watch during the course of the year whether... You know, if Lewis is in front of the Ferrari, will he, you know, step aside and give them a position if his car's not doing well? Or just keep an eye on some on some on some midfield batterers banter as well. And now he's very very good friends with Ferrari boss Freddie Vasseur. They used to they won the GP2 championship together with ART Grand Prix that Freddie co-owns with Nicholas Todd, the son of Jean Todd, former Ferrari boss and FIA boss as well. So. Lewis does have very strong connections at Ferrari, and uh, in that sense, I'm not too surprised. But we'll see how the uh, the on-field track action happens if they come together yeah, during the course of the season. It's a strange one, the timing, because hey, look from a Carlos uh, science point of view, you sort of get it. He's you know knows that he's not going to have a, a seat at the end of the season, so he's going to give his all, etc., for Ferrari and just give it the old, you know, this is what you're missing out on. But with the Mercedes side of things, surely they're going to be trying to future plan as well, and. Will there be a point during the season where they give rides to a couple of the junior riders, yeah. etc., to see if, they, if, if they've got what it takes? Absolutely. The, the walls will start coming down between Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes and likewise between Carlos Sainz and Ferrari. So I don't think we'll see Lewis do any pre-season testing now. I think it'll go to the reserve drivers uh, and to George Russell, and they'll start locking him out of meetings. They won't invite him into to give them meetings on, on future planning and products and everything else. He'll simply get to a point where he'll simply be plugged into a car and say, go and do your laps and then get out and have, you know, have your coffee and talk to the fans. Do not get involved in any team meetings because we're talking about things that are now not for your ears. And I think they're going to start to see that shutting down, I think, right up from the first round onwards. Makes for an interesting season. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting one, that's for sure, yeah.
There's going to be all sorts of twists and turns. We can promise you that. Uh, Damo, bless you. Really, thank you for that one. I know you're just f- fresh off the plane, so thanks very much indeed for your time this morning. Big thanks to Damien Reed, the host of Motomania. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.